Good morning. I'd like to welcome you to Mill Creek Baptist Church this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we have connection cards in our pews. If you would just uh, peel that out and place it in an offering plate, that gives us information about yourself and how we reach back out to you. Um, there are a number of announcements in the bulletin. I'd encourage you to look at it at some point. Let's go to Lord in prayer this morning. Dear Lord, uh, just thank you for letting us gather here this morning, Lord. Lord, thank you for uh, the beautiful weather outside, Lord. Lord, I just am so, so, so thankful for uh, just this mission Sunday, Lord. Lord, I pray that uh, just during this hour, Lord, that we would hear more about opportunities to serve you, Lord. Lord, whether that's here locally, whether that's uh, at the state level, Lord, or even internationally, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would just hear about those opportunities, Lord, and that we would respond to whatever you're calling us to do, Lord. Lord, I pray that in our daily lives that we would be missional, Lord. Lord, that we would share the good news about Jesus Christ with those we come in contact, Lord. So, Lord, uh, as we prepare to worship you this morning, Lord, I just pray that we would take this moment just to repair our hearts, Lord. And Lord, that just, just during this time, Lord, that we would just truly focus on you, Lord. And Lord, as your word is uh, preached this morning, Lord, Lord, may it just change us, Lord. May we grow to know you more. May we grow to love you more. And Lord, may we grow to love others. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I just love it when on Sunday mornings we just take the time to sing our hymns. Not only because it's educational for our children to be able to hear them and learn them, but they just tell the story of Jesus in a very poetic and special way. So please stand and join me as we sing a few of our hymns and sing.
Let me add my word of welcome to those of you who are here, as well as those of you joining us online. We're glad that you are worshiping with us here at Mill Creek this morning. We want to take an opportunity on Friday. It was a special day. Hey, Luke, can you hold on for just a minute? I'm going to use her, too. Thank you. When you sat down, I'll have to tell Luke to hold on, but I'm here. Friday was a special day here in the life of the United States as we remembered, celebrated our veterans. A week ago on Sunday, we prayed for the persecuted church, the international church, and uh, it reminded each year when we pray for the persecuted church on the, the freedoms that we have, that we enjoy, that we experience as Americans, those freedoms that were so often made possible through the result of those who have served in our armed forces. I have a special place in my heart having grown up around the Pentagon and up in Northern Virginia, Fort Belvoir, Quantico, and those areas for our military and their families. So we want to take a moment this morning and just recognize and honor our veterans. So if you are here this morning and you have served in one of the branches of our armed forces, would you just please stand so that we can thank you for your service. So we're going to take a moment right now to pray over these boxes. 
Father God, we thank you for the opportunity we have, the honor and the privilege we have to pack boxes. Father, bring them in, and Lord, to send them out. And in some ways, Father, this is a commissioning of shoe boxes that are going to be going out to all parts of the world. That are going to be going into villages and Africa and South Africa, Cambodia and other nations, Father, where these boxes will penetrate through lines and barriers that oftentimes we cannot. And then these boxes will go into the hands of children who will hear the gospel message. But more importantly than the box and the goodies inside the box, Father, they're going to receive discipleship. They're going to be taught the gospel message that you came to save them. And Father, that that message that they will carry into their homes and into their cities and communities and villages, Father. And so we pray that you would bless each box that is packed, bless those who are packing them, and even now prepare the hearts of the children who will be receiving them. Not just the box, but receiving the good news of your message and how you can change their lives. So Father, we pray over these and we prepare to send them out with thousands and thousands of others to make an impact around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, boys and girls, thank you for your help. If you bring the boxes back up here and put it back down, and you can go back to where you were. Thanks for doing that. We're also going to have our time of prayer now for those on our prayer list. and just want to make you aware of some that are on the list, some that you may not be aware of. Uh, we just made an executive decision this morning, and rather than pulling their name out, we're asking you to pray for our music minister, Cindy Hayden. Cindy has been sick since Tuesday and um, had a variety of doctor's appointments as well as a scan this week. Uh, she was doing everything she could to be here today, but woke up this morning and said the pain is better, but the nausea is not. So, um, Cindy, if you're watching, we're praying for you. Pray for Cindy this week as our person of prayer and remember her as well as the various ways she serves our church family. Uh, we want to continue to remember Frank and Teresa Garrett. Uh, Frank has recently had shingles, then he had the flu. That flu has turned into pneumonia. And uh, so Teresa texted me this morning and said, please remember Frank now that he has pneumonia as well. So we want to lift up Frank. Sue Sweet is having her third or fourth, uh, third of four chemo treatments this Thursday. Sue and Jerry were in our first hour, but remember Sue this week. They said the uh, regimen that she will be receiving this week is going to hit her harder than the previous two have, and so she's preparing for that. But we're praying that it doesn't um, have as many side effects. Also want to remember Lisa Bauer's dad, who's um, been diagnosed with a second form of cancer recently, and lift him up. We have a number of folks who have lost loved ones recently. Ian Camper. Um, Ian's brother-in-law passed away unexpectedly Friday night, so I want to remember Ian and his family as they're grieving the loss of his brother-in-law. We've been praying for David Witt. David passed away on Thursday morning, early Thursday morning, and his um, celebration of life service will be tomorrow. So we want to continue to remember Josh and their family as they're going through this grief process. And I'd ask you also to especially pray for Josh. He is the primary officiant in his dad's funeral service tomorrow. And it's a great way for him to honor his dad, but it's also going to be a challenging time, I'm sure. So remember, Josh, especially tomorrow at 2 during that funeral service. Um, Olivia Marquette, some of you know um, Aaron and Jenny Marquette and their kids. Olivia is a freshman at Ole Miss. And um, back in 
February, when she was a senior at Lord Bottletop, she had a surgery on her ankle. Since then, she has had two more surgeries on her ankle. And this Friday, she's going to have to have a fourth surgery. She's got some staples that are inside um, the surgical area, inside her ankle, that her body is rejecting and is beginning to form abscesses around. So they're going to go in on Thursday to remove those staples. Olivia, like I said, is at Ole Miss, so they'll be doing that procedure in Tupelo, and then she'll be coming home Thanksgiving break, going back to school on crutches. And so we want to remember Olivia this Friday, and especially that this will be the final surgery necessary on that ankle. There's a host of others on our prayer sheet that I'll trust you'll take home and look at later on as time permits, and use this as part of your daily quiet time. Let's go to the Lord in prayer for these folks right now. Oh, wait, before we do. Let me also let you know we have a prayer blanket up here. This prayer blanket is going to good friends of mine and Debbie. They were neighbors of ours before they, uh, before Norfolk Southern moved them to Atlanta. They're also very close uh, friends with Pam and Jeff Gibson. Sharice Cochran. Sharice uh, went to the doctor on Friday uh, after having a couple weeks of not feeling well. They discovered two tumors that they're going to be removing tomorrow. Sharice uh, is in the Atlanta area. Uh, if you know Susan Woody, who we've been praying for a grandson, Susan Woody is Sharice's sister-in-law. Sharice is married to Susan's brother. That gives you a little family connection there. I want to invite you to pray over this blanket this morning as you leave as well. Lord, we come before you at this time. Thank you for the opportunity we have to approach your throne room of heaven. That what Christ accomplished on the cross gains us entrance. And Father, we thank you for that. Lord, we do come this morning. We lift up Cindy to you. We thank you for all of the pastoral care which she has given to this congregation over the years that she has served here. And now, Father, when she needs some care, we lift her up and pray for her. Pray that you would help this medicine that she's taking to, to relieve the nausea. We are grateful that the pain is subsiding, but Lord, now pray for the nausea as well. And Lord, that this medicine will do what it's meant to, and she'll be back with us serving uh, very quickly. Father, for those who have lost loved ones this week, for the Camper family, as well as the Witt family, we lift them up. Father, you promised the, the comfort of your spirit. You said you would not leave us as orphans, but you would send a comforter. And so we pray, Lord, that the comfort of your Holy Spirit would surround the campers and the Wits right now as they're journeying in this valley of grief and loss. Lord, that you will sustain and carry them through this time as you've promised. Lord, we pray for Josh as he prepares to uh, leave in his father's celebration service tomorrow, that you would give him the strength for that moment as he celebrates his dad. And Father, as they lay him to rest tomorrow. Lord, we lift up those we've mentioned this morning. Think of Frank Garrett right now, who's been diagnosed with pneumonia, and pray that that will clear out of his lungs quickly. Lord, we pray for Sue as she prepares to have this chemo treatment, that the chemo attacks what it's supposed to, that it takes care of um, this cancer in her body. And that, Father, uh, the side effects will be minimal. Lord, help her through that time of difficulty as we continue to surround and lift her up as her church family. Father, for this blanket that's going to be going to Sharice Cochran, Lord, we lift it up. We pray, Lord, that it would provide a sense of hope and comfort to her, for a painful reminder of this church here that's lifting she and her husband Rob up right now as they are going through this difficult time in their life. And Father, pray that as these masses are removed and pathology reports are received that Lord that this will be something that can be taken care of efficiently and that they won't have to worry about um, in the days to come. Lord for Olivia
having the abscesses and other things, the body rejecting these things before the, the, the body will heal following this procedure and that she'll be able to get back to her routines quickly. Freshman year, first semester of her freshman year of college, it went into difficult, tough time, but to add this in, Lord, make it even more challenging. And so we pray that you would surround and comfort Olivia as well. Be with us, Lord, as we collect our offering. Father, help us to be uh, givers who give cheerfully because we know that this offering is helping us share the good news, not just here, but around the world. And so, Father, as we give, we give out of joy for the abundance in which you've entrusted to us. So bless it in the name of Jesus Christ. We lift all of these things up and pray. Amen. Amen. We invite our ushers to come at this time. <laughs>
of people. Do what she does. This is Mission Sunday here at Mill Creek, and I want to invite you to take your Bibles and open them up to John chapter 11. That's where uh, Kristen Curtis is going to be sharing with us here momentarily. As you're doing that, let me also draw your attention to this leaflet that is in your bulletin this morning, Mill Creek on Mission. I've said for a lot of years, I was on the other side of these walls, at, serving at another church, and I was always hearing about all of the missions that Mill Creek was involved in, and I always thought, there's no way, there's no way that a church the size of Mill Creek is doing all of these things, until I became your pastor and discovered there is a way. You do it, you do it well, and um, Mill Creek, since 1804, Mill Creek has been impacting this community and abroad missionally, and we continue in that um, even today. And so you'll notice on this sheet that there are a variety of mission opportunities. One of the things that I am most um, excited about and grateful for is the missions that we are involved with right here in our surrounding community. There are so many things that we are doing on an ongoing basis to help meet needs of those in our community. One of them specifically is ramping up right now because of the time of year, and that's our woodcutting ministry. We have a variety of families right around the church that can't afford to heat their homes or even cook um, except by use of wood. And so next Sunday, our woodcutting ministry is going to be doing some work after the second hour of worship. It's just right down the hill from the church. And so you'll, uh, you would be welcome there to be part of that ministry if you'd like to. But then also the variety of ministries we have, like I said, in the community. On the back of the sheet, you'll notice there are some um, uh, groups that you can plug into missionally to learn more about what's going on, not just locally, but around the world. And then as well as some mission trips that you have an opportunity to either support or be a part of in 2023. I do want to give one disclaimer, and that's to the one that my name is beside for Romania. Right now we're in an email conversation with my contact there in Romania, but one of the things that Project Ruth, who I've been affiliated with since about 2012, one of the things they've been doing is housing Ukrainian refugees because they're in Bucharest, which is right near the Ukrainian border. They've been housing refugees, but they have also now transitioned into a feeding response as well. They're packing boxes, they call four seven boxes. Each box will feed four people for seven days. They get those boxes loaded into tractor trailers and then send them into Ukraine, where Baptist pastors are meeting them, getting those boxes and getting them into the hands of Ukrainian folks who are there needing that food. Um, the email I received was, would a team from Mill Creek like to come in late February or early March to help with that ministry, packing boxes and shipping them out? And so we're working out, we're trying to figure out all the logistics to that. As we gain more information, I will let you know. But it looks like there is a possibility for a group from Mill Creek to go to Romania late February, early March time frame. And so I'll let you know. But that's all the information I have right now. Uh, so I wanted to make you aware of that so you don't start calling and email and saying, what's going on with this? You now you know. Uh, this morning we have an opportunity to hear uh, from Kristen. Kristen is our Baptist General Association of Virginia Crisis, I want to get your, your title right, Response Training and Crisis Care, care Team 
coordinator. Kristen Curtis and her husband live in Farmville, Virginia, where he pastors Heritage Baptist Church. Kristen has been serving part-time for the BDAV in this capacity and will be going full-time in that position um, next month, right, Kristen? And, uh, and so we welcome Kristen here this morning to share with us how we can be involved in some of the things that are going on through the Baptist General Association of Virginia. Through our tithes and offerings, we help support the BDAV, and part of that is through this crisis response, but we also have ways to respond when disaster strikes, and Kristen has firsthand look into a lot of that. So she's going to share some personal stories as well as from Scripture this morning to let you know our mission lunch today is a baked potato, salad bar, dessert lunch downstairs following this worship hour. All proceeds that are donated, the lunch is free, it's by donation, so all proceeds that are donated are going to be sent to the BJB specifically for disaster response and relief. And so I invite you to go down to that lunch after this hour of worship. In the meantime, Kristen, come up and share with us, and I'll ask you to welcome Kristen as she comes up. Good morning. It's a privilege to be with you today. Um, as you said, I am the training and crisis care team coordinator for Virginia Baptist Disaster Response. And um, what that means is I get to help train uh, people to do the mass feedings that we do, where we can feed up to 25,000 people a day uh, through our mobile kitchens. We do cleanup work after floods and storms where we go in and help people take out everything that's been flooded and damaged. And then we do long-term rebuilds where we um, help put things back together again. And then I also help coordinate and support our crisis care team, which, is, which provides spiritual and emotional support for storm survivors and also for our volunteers as they serve. So that's what I get to do with my time. I love my job. It's, it's fun to get to make a difference in people's lives um, on a daily basis. But it's been a busy year for us in disaster response. Uh, we have be began the year by finishing a long-term rebuild in Buchanan County uh, from a flood that happened in February of 2020. And we started our traditional sending volunteers from all over the state to respond to that. And then, of course, COVID hit. And so then it kind of got spearheaded by a local church because we couldn't bring volunteers in for a while during COVID. So it took longer to rebuild after that response than it normally would. But we finally finished in February. <coughs> On a Monday afternoon, um, our construction coordinator called our director and said, hey, we're finishing the last house today. Tuesday, it started raining, and the other side of the county flooded in um, another massive damage situation. And because we had been there and made connections and, and, and connected with people and county government, immediately we got the phone call. You're still here, right? Can you help? And so we started our mass feeding kitchen up and, and started cleanup crews right away, and we're now shifting gears into long-term rebuild again in Buchanan County probably be there for many, many, many months to come, uh, which provides opportunities for people like you. If you'd like to come and serve, you can actually plan ahead and plan a mission trip to go and do that. We also, this year, after Hurricane Ian hit Florida, because we were on standby thinking it might come through Virginia, we didn't respond immediately after that storm hit, but we got a call from a church that has a, a connection through Fresh Expressions with the BGAB asking if we could help support them as they wanted to minister to their local community in Fort Myers, Florida that had been hit by Ian. 
And so we have been trying something new in that we sent equipment down and experienced volunteers to train their local people to do the work that we do. We're also funneling volunteers down to help support that work on an ongoing basis. But largely what we're doing is supporting the work of local people to, to serve their local communities, which is really neat. So that's what we've been up to this year, and, and God continues to give us opportunities to serve. But imagine, if you will, the home you've been living in, you don't pay much rent for because you can't afford much, and you exchange a lot of what would be rent for manual labor around the property that you live on, and a flood comes through and practically destroys the home, makes it absolutely uninhabitable, and you can't afford to go anywhere else. And through the generosity of, of someone you don't even know, you get a small travel trailer to live in temporarily. But you have two disabled children, one profoundly disabled and wheelchair-bound, and another that's autistic. And this travel trailer is too small for all four of you to sleep in. And so the older child is sleeping in the tent outside the travel trailer. And you can't afford to fix the home you're in, and your landlord isn't helping. What do you do? Where do you go? What do you do for help? That's a family that we've been helping in Buchanan County, and they just last two weeks ago, I think, moved back in to their rental home because volunteers with donated resources and donated time and skill have been able to rebuild their home so they can move back in and care for their family again. Natural disasters are a terrible thing. Often in an instant and with very little warning, Sometimes everything people own is destroyed. Floods come in, water three to six feet in your home. And what you may not know about flood water is it's not just clean water that, okay, it's wet and you know we can clean it up. It's mixed with whatever it's come in contact with as it's come through. So that's raw sewage, that's gasoline, that's chemicals. All of that is in those flood waters. And so um, anything porous that those flood waters touch pretty much becomes trash. It can't be salvaged. It's not safe to be around. And so when we go in and serve after a flood or a hurricane, often what our volunteers are doing is literally carrying a lifetime's worth of things out to the curb as trash. Think about how devastating that would be. Think about your grandmother's hope chest or the family Bible or wedding pictures or your children's baby blanket. All of those things and all of the memories attached to those, and all of the people attached to those, out on the side of the road as trash. How devastating that is. How helpless you might feel. Particularly if you don't have insurance to replace it or to rebuild. And what many people don't know is flooding in particular is not covered by a traditional homeowner's policy. So even if you have insurance, if you don't have a separate flood policy, none of that flood damage is covered by your homeowner's FEMA doesn't always come in to rescue. In fact, in rural areas, often they don't because they have a certain threshold of damage that has to be met before FEMA will provide resources, particularly at the individual level. Rural areas like Buchanan County with lower property values rarely qualify, even when it's a devastating storm to a whole community. People of faith are who bridge that gap. And it's often easy, I think, when you, when you see that firsthand and when you talk to people who have lived through that. It's easy to question, where is God? 
in the middle of something like that. We know that God is good. We know that God loves us. But how does a good God allow horrible things to happen? We know he has the power to stop them if he chose to. How does a good God allow these things to happen? And the passage in um, the book of John chapter 11 this morning, I think, gives us some real hints about how God can work even in the worst of circumstances and how sometimes God allows them so that he can show himself to people in a way that they could not experience him in any other way. And I think we get to see that in disaster response a lot as well. So it starts out, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And the sister sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And this is a, probably a pretty familiar story to most of us sitting in a church at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. You've probably heard it before. And certainly this would have been a disaster to these women. They lived in a culture where there weren't many options for women to care for their own needs financially. They were dependent on their brother to provide for them. And here he is close to death. And they know Jesus. He's a good friend of the family. They know he can do miracles. They know he's healed the sick. And so they send word, Jesus, can you come? We need you. But what happens? He doesn't come right away. In fact, it tells us when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. You know, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. So although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Right after I started my work in disaster response, that verse, although he loved them, he stayed, really jumped off the page at me. He loved them. He knew what was going to happen, and he chose not to come right away. He chose to let a bad thing happen to them. Because he loved them. In the NIV it says, because he loved them, he stayed. That's kind of hard for my human brain to understand. Hard for me to wrap my head around. Why would Jesus, who loved them, not come? But that verse 4 is, I think, the key. He knew that this was for the glory of God. So that the Son of God could be glorified through it. He knew that good could come from this. And so because he loved them, he allowed them to go through very painful things so that they could understand him in a new way, so that they could see a mighty work of God in a way that there would be no other way to see except through this horrible circumstance. I got to see this happen in someone's life early in my disaster response career. I, at the time, lived in Charlotte County, just over the county line from Appomattox. And about five miles from my home, a tornado touched down and drove a 17-mile swath through Appomattox County. Hit two different communities pretty significantly. One of them was Evergreen, where it destroyed several homes. I mean, they were just gone. It looked like a war zone went wrong. The bombs had been dropped. And at the time, I was looking for a part-time job and made a connection with the director of disaster response. And he said, Bunny, you're looking for a job. We're looking for someone to coordinate volunteers for this response. Are you interested? And so God put me in the right place at the right time with a need for a job to meet needs in my local community. It's pretty cool. But one of the people that I got to know was a woman whose house had been completely flattened 
in that tornado. Her father had been killed. It's only death in that storm. And through the stress of all of that, her marriage fell apart and she and her husband got divorced. Her income was dependent on the greenhouse that she worked out of in her backyard that had also blown away in the storm. So she truly had no way to recover on her own. To top that off, she was one of those people that was kind of an outcast in her community. In fact, people expressed anger that she was the first house that was getting rebuilt, that she didn't deserve it. Um, and part of what we got to do is talk about the love of God and how his grace overcomes that, that none of us deserve his grace. And we get to extend grace to this person who needed help desperately. And as teams came in week after week after week, because it takes a while to build a house from the ground up with volunteers, she got to come and meet those volunteers. Every week she'd drop in a couple of times while they were working so they could meet the homeowner they were working for. And when she first, when they first started work, she was very shy, very withdrawn. Um, people would hug her because people do that. And she would just kind of stand there very very uncomfortable. People would talk to her and she would look down at the ground. She wouldn't look people in the eyes. But week after week after week, as people came and loved her with hammers and nails and with prayer blankets that their church had made and with paint and with caulking guns and all the things that go into building a house. And they talked to her and they shared God's love with her and they would circle up and pray before the workday and invite her to join them in their circle. And they would just have conversation with her throughout the day. I watched her begin to look up. I watched her begin to hug people back. I watched her begin to smile. And when we finally were able to turn the keys over about three weeks before Christmas that year, they started in February the previous year, so it was a long process. When we finally turned the keys over to her, we had a housewarming party. And she was able to stand in front of a room full of people that had worked on her home and speak and express her gratitude and express how she experienced God's love through them. What a transformation. Now she wasn't perfect, she wasn't fully healed, she wasn't all of a sudden the most popular person in her community, but she knew she was loved by God, she knew she was loved by God's people, and she had this brand new home, it needed no maintenance because it was all brand new, and a team that had come a couple of times and really gotten to know her had even purchased a greenhouse to replace the greenhouse in her backyard so she had a source of income again. God's people sharing God's love in very tangible ways made a huge difference in her life. One she wouldn't have been able to experience had her home not been destroyed in that storm. We're seeing similar things happen in Buchanan County as we have been there for these last two years now and continue to be there over the long haul. One of the things that often happens in big storms is the media comes, and there's lots of media attention. The second storm that hit Buchanan County actually made the national news, and so disaster relief organizations from all over the country swarmed into town for about three weeks. Got a lot of work done, certainly, and that's very, very important, especially early after a flood, because as mold grows, the longer it's going to sit. So the faster we can clean those homes out, the better. That was amazing. But after about three weeks, the news cycle was gone and had moved on to something else, and most of the volunteer organizations had left and hadn't been back. That's not to knock what they do. They're set up to do that short-term response, and that's super important. But that left a whole lot of people with their homes gutted and no way to get back into them, no resources to do it. 
but we were there. The BJV had been continuously spearheading the rebuild there, and we've been partnering with other Christians, other denominations, other groups that also come in, but we're coordinating that event, and if we weren't there, there wouldn't be anybody to do that. In fact, our um, construction coordinator was sharing with me the other day, he said that several homeowners have told him if it weren't for faith-based organizations, there would be no help in that county. That he's driven around and looked, there are no contractors working. It's only volunteers, most with donated resources and donating their time and their talent to rebuild that community. And because of that, they're able to go in homes of people who would never set foot in a building like this. For whatever reason, they've been hurt by church, they've just never gone to church, they don't feel worthy of God's love for many reasons, would never set foot in church on a Sunday morning. But because of the storm, because we're there, because we're saying we have something to offer you, we bring the church to them. The church goes into their front door through their invitation and gets to share the love of God with them in tangible ways, week after week after week, as they rebuild their home. We get to share with them God's grace, God's mercy, and his extravagant love that takes a home that often is in disrepair before the storm and builds it back to something beautiful. So back in Bethany, Jesus finally gets to Mary and Martha, and in fact, their brother had died. They're surrounded by friends who are there to console them. And Martha hears from someone that Jesus is coming. Now, the Bible just says the words that she said, but in my head, I always see her kind of angrily stomping out to him and yelling at him, Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Martha's kind of a hard-charging person, right? So, you know, I just, that's how I hear her voice in my head. And Jesus doesn't defend himself doesn't justify what happened, doesn't try to explain, he just listens to her and lets her storm back off. Again, that's my own visual for that. The Bible doesn't say that, but I envision her storming off after she says her piece. And then she goes and gets her sister Mary and says, hey, Jesus wants to talk to you. Now, Jesus didn't actually say that. Martha's trying to get him, you know, I want you to see what you've done to us. I can't. But she sends Mary. Mary has a very different response. Mary actually gets to Jesus and is so overcome by grief, she falls down at his feet and weeps. And in verse 32, it tells us, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So this is interesting to me because Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew that he was not going to leave them in their pain and grief and anger or whatever they were feeling. He knew there was about to be a celebration of life, not the kind that we talk about now in the funeral, but Lazarus was about to come back. He knew that. And yet, when Mary weeps, what does he do? He probably memorized this verse, shortest verse in the Bible. What does he do? He wept. He was moved by compassion for her. He was moved by her pain. He felt her pain with her, not because 
He knew it was going to last forever, not because he missed Lazarus or was grieving Lazarus. He knew it was about to happen, but he had compassion for her pain, and it hurt him that she was hurting, even though he knew ultimately it was for her good. He cried with her. This is another thing we get to do when we go into communities after a disaster. We get to say to them, I see you. Often, we end up in communities where no one else is. We often go where the news media isn't. It just kind of happens that way. So like when Hurricane Harvey hit and the Houston area was getting all the news and, and huge amounts of attention and volunteers flooding in and lots of money flooding in and the first government resources, we ended up in a community called Liberty, Texas, about an hour outside of Houston, where people felt, frankly, forgotten and ignored because they had been just as devastated, but not one news story. Not one FEMA representative had come, but a local pastor who had, who knew us because we had hosted a mass feeding unit at their church 10 years before, called the BTAB and said, can you come? And so we started sending volunteers to Liberty, Texas. And I got to be one of the first groups that was there. And one afternoon I was, I was sitting in the office that we had set up in this host church. And... Um, Frankly, it was the first time I had responded as a crisis care team member, and I was kind of feeling insecure and not sure what to do. And they'd asked me to hang out at the office that day, so I was helping set up the office, do some other things. And this older woman comes in with her brother, and she can't stop crying. I mean, she's weeping the entire time she's there. And that's how I got involved, is the admin people were like, come home, because they didn't know what to do with this crying woman either. Um, and so while they talked to her brother to figure out what the, her home needed, I sat with her. And her brother had come and gotten all of the wet insulation out from under her trailer. The water had gotten right to the edge of her front door. It hadn't come in the house. So she could live in her home, but it needed work. So her brother had gotten all the wet insulation out, but it needed time to dry and then be put back, and he had to go back to work in another city. So they had come to ask for help. And she wouldn't stop crying. And so I just sat with her and listened to her. And she, you know, kept saying, I'm sorry, I can't stop crying, I'm so sorry. And I just said, you know, it's okay to cry. This is a really overwhelming thing. Her husband had died a few months before. So not only was it the, the, the overwhelmness of the storm, but it was also the first major event in her life that her husband hadn't been there for. The first time she couldn't help herself because her husband had always done those things. And she needed to cry, she needed to grieve. And so I just sat with her as she cried. And before they left, I was able to pray with her and her brother. And they left, and she was still crying. And I really thought, gosh, I'm a failure. I've done nothing. She's still so upset. I wasn't any comfort to her whatsoever. Well, the next day, I went out with one of our assessors to look at some of the homes that had requested help. Because we send assessors out, they do a work list. And then our volunteers go in and do the work. So I was out with the assessor. And when you know, the second house we pulled up to was this woman's home. She was sitting on the front stoop. But she wasn't crying. She jumped up and ran to the truck and gave me a hug with a big smile on her face. She said, there you are. You know, I was telling my sister last night, that lady must be a psychiatrist. I'm not. <laughs> but because she told me it was okay to cry. And I just needed to cry. And my brother kept telling me to stop crying. It was making him uncomfortable because he couldn't fix it. I told her it was okay to cry. And she said, and when you prayed for me, I just knew everything was going to be okay. When people feel seen and heard, and we can connect them with the love and the hope of Jesus Christ, 
it dramatically affects the way they cope with the things that have fallen them. She had hope. And we were able to share the good news with her at the end of that visit, that in fact, what she needed done, all of our volunteers could do, free of charge to her, and get her back to where she needed to be. Because we knew how to fix it, and we had the donated resources to do it, and we were able to make her whole again. What a gift. And what a gift to me to get to see the happy ending, because a lot of times I don't get to see that. I meet with someone for 20 minutes or an hour, and then I never see them again. I never get to see the impact. So God gave me a gift that day. I got to see the impact that I had. But he gave her a gift through the love of God's people as they, again, would come and work on her house for several days or a week to put it back together. And so it was with Mary and Martha. They got a happy ending. We get to see their happy ending, right? Um, Down in verse 38, Jesus, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. So he took away the stone, and Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let them go. I think it's so interesting here what Jesus did, because he had a plan not only for this family, but for the community around them. And it included full restoration, both physically and spiritually. And he has the same plan for many of the families that we meet on disaster response. Many of those families will end up better in a home that's fully repaired, knowing the love of God in a new way. A new sense of community as they watch the people around them work. But what Jesus did in that community in that moment was he told the people to move the stone. There was a barrier between Lazarus and Jesus. That Lazarus couldn't get out of that, even if Jesus had called to him, he couldn't move that stone himself. He needed help to do it. And Jesus, being Jesus, could have, you know, flicked the stone away, but he didn't. He involved the community. He asked the community to move the stone. He asked the community to give that man access to his bed. We get to be that community for many people. Again, a lot of people would never set foot in a church, but we get to bring church to them. We get to show them the love of God in a tangible way that they can understand. We move stones. And Lazarus came out of the tomb, and he was alive. But he wasn't quite free, was he? He was bound by those linen strips. He kind of wobbled out of his bed. bound by grief and pain a lot when we do disaster response. I see people bound by poverty. I see people bound by circumstances. And again, Jesus called to the community and said, unbind him. The people around him set him free. And when we do disaster response, we get to help set people free, to lift that burden of debt that would have come upon them to rebuild when they don't have the resources, to lift the burden of I don't know what to do. One thing we know about trauma and the brain is when we have a traumatic experience, literally the logic centers of our brain shut down. We go into survival mode, and it's like there's a bear, get away from it. That's that's about the level of thinking that's all we can do. And so when a storm has hit a community, especially early on, we're dealing with a lot of traumatized people who can't think logically. Like, what's the next step? 
oh, you need to get on the list for FEMA help, or you need to get on the list for Red Cross, or you need to get the mold and wet out of your house. They're paralyzed by trauma and they don't know what to do. Even people who in ordinary circumstances would be able to help themselves. And so we get to come in and help loosen those bindings by sitting down and talking to them and letting them talk about their experience and being that compassionate ear, by being the people that say, it's okay, we know what to do, and our teams know how to fix this. And we get in there with our um, box cutters and we cut out the wet drywall and we carry it out and we carry out those belongings that are too damaged to be salvaged. And we help them figure out how to salvage the things they can. And we, we work through that with them. And we unbind them so that they can be free. And then we help rebuild as often as we can, as often as we can afford to do so. So that again, they're not left with an empty shell, but they can actually live and, and have a whole life again in the home that they love, in the community that they love. And that rebuilds community, that rebuilds support structures, that rebuilds connection with the people that they've been around who have had to leave because they didn't have anywhere to live in the, in the interim. We get to be a part of, of building community. And even more than that, often when we're in those communities, people come to us and say, I see you're helping my neighbor, can you help me? Or I heard you were in town, can you come look at my house? And their home has no storm damage. But they have a lot of deferred maintenance issues. Because again, they can't afford to buy the materials or they don't know how to do the work. They can't afford to hire someone to do it. There's great need in that community. And in disaster response, we can't do things that aren't disaster related because we have you know, earmarked funds for disaster response. But what we've been able to do is partner with our impact mission camps. And we keep a running list of the homes that have needs that aren't storm related. And very often we'll be able to bring teenagers in over the summer and I know some of your students have participated in impact mission camps, so you know what I'm talking about. But we can bring in students and adults that know what they're doing that can teach the students what to do, and they do a lot of those projects in homes that can't afford to fix it, but it's not storm damage. But again, the storm was the open door to make that connection and to go in. And then teenagers get to love on those people. And that's an even bigger open door because people just love the youth and the energy of, of students in a different kind of way. And students are just so open with their faith. It's, it's really fun to watch. And so God has plans for these communities that are touched by disaster. And it's not just to put it back to where it was before the storm. It's to make it better. To build connections between people. You know, after if you've ever been in, in, around when the power's been out for a long time, you know, people come out of their homes and connect in a way they didn't before. And community organizations that have been siloed doing their own thing are suddenly connecting in ways they never have before. And people who had need that weren't wasn't storm related get fixed. And people who had damages to their homes, it gets fixed. And the community is stronger and the community is better a year or two after the storm. Jesus called out to them, come forth. And he uses our hands and feet to do it. And we get to be part of his work. And it's just an incredible blessing to get to be part of that. And it's an incredible gift to be able to share the love of God in these tangible ways with people. So if I've done my job well this morning, hopefully you're sitting in your pew and you're going, wow, I want to be a part of that. What can I do? How can I get started? So I'll give you three ways that you can be involved in disaster response real quickly. The first one is you can pray. I'm a firm believer that 
Often, God wants to do things in our lives and the lives of others, but he waits for us to ask before he asks. And so, when you recognize there's a need, you see something on the news, you hear about a disaster. There are disaster response volunteers, Baptists and otherwise, all over the world, responding to those things. When we pray, God activates his people, God activates resources that we know not of, and the work that's done. So pray for the volunteers, pray for the survivors, pray for those to be moved who can share their resources to support the work. The second thing you can do is give. We can't all go. I mean, the honest truth of the matter is, as wonderful as this work is, some of us are busy raising small children that we can't leave, or caring for elderly parents that we can't leave, or working a full-time job to put food on the table, and you can't drop out that, go with the drop of the hat. But maybe you have financial resources. And like I said, the work that we do most often is for people who are uninsured or underinsured. They have no way to become whole again without donation. And so when, when you give to this work, like you're doing at lunch today, or if you write a check for, the, to, for a particular disaster, um, to support the work of that disaster. It goes directly to help the people who have survived the storm. A lot of times when you give to something like the American Red Cross, they do great work, but about 50% of that donation goes to institutional and they pay salaries, to keep the lights on in their corporate offices, those kinds of things. Important stuff. But when you give to disaster response, a very, very small part goes to support, starting in December, two part-time staff people, because I'm shifting to full-time. Um, our full-time staff get paid through this Walker and Giving at UGC Research. Our part-time staff, we have the construction coordinator who spearheads the field part of the work, and we have a um, logistics coordinator who makes sure all of our fleet is in good working order and gets where it needs to go. Those two people, their, their salaries come out of those donations. Everything else goes for materials and to support volunteer labor. Pretty good bang for your buck. One of the things we know from our Botanic County uh, response right now, uh, Butch, our, our construction coordinator, was telling me last year when they were building, rebuilding in Grundy, to get people what we call rapid rebuild, where we put um, flooring down, we put drywall up, we make sure they have one working bathroom, we get like nine linear feet of kitchen counter space, working appliances. Enough that they can live there until we can make it pretty. Cost about $9,000 per house. This year, the very same work in the same county is costing twelve dollars to $13,000. Just inflation is what it is right now. So if you have the, the financial blessings to help, that doubles our efforts when we can go into that community. One of the other ways that, that your giving helps is often when FEMA or the, the state of Virginia are involved in helping with that response, they require matching funds from the municipalities. Um, so if FEMA gives $100,000 to a community, the community might have to provide $50,000 matching funds to fill the requirement to get that help. Well, our volunteers get counted as, I think it's $20 an hour, that the municipalities can count as matching funds. All of the, all of the materials that we can purchase and donate get counted by the county as matching funds. So the work that we do not only, not only are you buying supplies and supporting people who are doing the work, but you're also helping that county get federal or state funding when it's available because they count it. So it helps in two ways. So you can pray, you can give, and then of course you can go. We're always looking for able-bodied volunteers. Um, 
It doesn't take a lot of skill to carry a wet mattress out a door. Anybody can do that if they're physically able. Um, it does take some skill to hang drywall. It does take some skill to lay a floor, but I am living proof that a deaf monkey can learn how. I went on a rebuild trip a couple of years ago. I've never done any of that kind of work. Day one, the construction coordinator gave us a quick lesson on how to cut and hang drywall. By day two, I was teaching someone else how to do it. By day three, I was learning how to mud the drywall, which there's a real <coughs> I still don't quite have that down, but I'm getting there. Um, so you can learn to do these things. They're actually very simple, most of them. If you've got somebody, one person in the room that knows how to do it, a whole team of people can do the work. Um, certainly, we always are looking for plumbers, electricians, people with those skills that you really do need to know what you're doing. To give those, we'd love to have you come and join us. But maybe physical labor isn't your thing. Maybe you don't, can't do it, or the heat is not your friend, because we're often working in August in air-conditioned buildings. Um, but maybe you're good with a computer. Maybe you can be one of our administrative helpers that help track all of that labor and make donations so that we can report that to the county. Maybe you are someone who says, you know, I can't do much, but I can wash and fold laundry. Well, when our volunteers have been out in all that sewage all day long, they need somebody back at the host site taking their dirty clothes and running them through our wash, or we have a mobile laundry unit, running those through the laundry so that they've got clean clothes to put on the next time they go out and we don't track all that stuff into the host church and we don't bring all that stuff home. Can you do laundry? Can you clean a toilet in the host church so that we're good guests while we're there? All of those things. Can you feed people? You know, our volunteers got to eat. You want to come and work in the kitchen and feed the volunteers. All of those things are part of what we do when we want response to disaster. So you can pray, you can give, you can go. And we have opportunities to go immediately, like when we're doing mass feeding and it's a, you know, hey, just storm it on Monday and we're leaving on Tuesday. But we also have these long-term rebuild opportunities where you can schedule six months out. Hey, we want to bring a team from our church, or I personally want to take a week of vacation from my job and go. You can sign up and register and go at a scheduled time. Part of what I love about doing long-term rebuilds is it's a more opportunity to serve. So what might God, God be calling you to do today? Everyone in this room can do something. Lazarus, come forth. The Cannon County, come forth. Fort Myers, Florida, come forth. Church, come forth. Jesus wants to bring hope and healing and life back to communities ravaged by disaster. He calls us to listen. He calls us to move stones. He calls us to unbind those who are trapped in pain and grief. He calls us to be his hands and feet. All of us can do something. What are you called to do? Pray with me. God, thank you. Thank you for the opportunities you give us to serve you. Thank you for the ways that you could do it yourself, and yet you call us in a partnership with you to do your work. Help us to love people well, the people around us who experience personal disasters as well as those farther away that, that have, have come upon natural disasters. Give us opportunities to be your hands and feet, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Then the opportunity through Impact Virginia, through disaster response to Katrina and some other um, natural disasters, to, to respond and be a part of what the BGAD is involved in. Um, I'm proud of our teenagers who have gone the last two summers to impact Virginia and the differences that they made right here in our community um, and some families and homes there. And so 
uses us in a variety of ways, but Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I didn't come to, to help the natural disasters. I didn't come to, I came to seek and save the lost, and sometimes that happens as a result of natural disasters and some of these other things. And so maybe you're here today, and you just need to respond to the gospel message knowing that Jesus came to seek and to save you because you're lost. And so we want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you'd like to know more about Bill Creed, what we're involved with, what we're doing, how you can be part of this family. We'd love to share that with you. Or maybe God just laid something else on your heart that you need to respond to in some way this morning. We would challenge you in that as well. We're going to close this out of worship out like we do each Sunday. We're going to stand and sing a song. It's an opportunity to worship. It's an opportunity to respond. I'll be right here if you have a public response today. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all have a blessed week.